In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I said last week that today I would be launching into a series of sermons on the Old Testament book of Daniel. I'm not actually going to read anything from Daniel today. In fact, I said someone contact me, whoever's reading the Old Testament lesson this week, contact me on Saturday and hopefully by then I'll be able to tell you what part of Daniel I'll have you read for this first introductory sermon. And we didn't read Daniel, did we, Mercia? We stuck with Zechariah, and I'll get to that in a minute. But why the book of Daniel? Because, brothers and sisters, I think it's appropriate and that the world today is not what it once was. My great-grandmother, the only one of my great-grandmothers I ever knew, my great-grandmother was born in 1896. When she died in 1993, I remember everybody talking about how much the world had changed in her lifetime and how she had seen it all. She was the daughter of Portuguese immigrants from the Azores, one of 13 children in a close-knit family. She grew up in Mission San Jose, a little town on the east side of San Francisco Bay. It was centered on a church established by Father Junipero Serra, the famous 18th century Franciscan missionary that established what they call the California missions all up the coast from Mexico. That town was sort of the Catholic California version of those New England Puritan towns centered on the white clabbered congregational church. She could remember the days when no one had ever seen an automobile, and yet she'd also seen Neil Armstrong put the first human foot on the moon. The Christmas I finally got the Atari 2600 video game that I had been begging for for years. She sat patiently and played Pac-Man with me. This woman who had grown up in a world not only without video games and television, but even without radios. Her lifetime was a lifetime of change. And it happened fast. From kerosene lamps to computers, from horse-drawn buggies to space shuttles. All in just one lifetime that was less than a century. And so everybody, when she died, was talking about that century of progress. And they were talking in technological terms. But looking back... I don't remember anyone talking about my great-grandmother having also seen simultaneously a century of regress that happened in religious, spiritual, and philosophical terms. My great-grandmother had seen church attendance peak in the 1950s and then slowly decline. The church that had once been the center of the community in which she grew up is now little more than a tourist attraction. She saw the decline of the family, the rise of the me generation, and the sexual revolution. She didn't have the education that would have given her the philosophical or theological language to describe or to talk about those changes, but she knew them, and she felt them in her bones, and her bones ached terribly. She knew, for example, what sacrifice was. 
Her mother died when she was 10 years old. She dropped out of school in the fifth grade to take care of her family, doing most of the cooking and baking and housekeeping for her father and 12 brothers and sisters. She knew what it meant to be part of and committed to a family and a community to give and to sacrifice for the sake of others. And she couldn't help but notice as her grandchildren and great-grandchildren, our generation became focused on ourselves, on consumption, on materialism, unwilling to give, unable to comprehend the life that she knew growing up. I always got the impression when she didn't have negative things to say about most people, but when she did say negative things, I always had the impression in the world in which she grew up, the worst thing you could be was a freeloader. People were expected to give. And even though these things weren't what people were talking about when she passed away, they were talking about the technological century of progress, these were far more significant things, far more profound changes that took place during the 20th century, and I think far more important than telephones or TVs or airplanes or computers. Now, as people, we've adapted pretty readily from buggies to cars and trains to airplanes and from telegraphs to texting. But the other changes, the spiritual, the religious, and the philosophical, that's another story, isn't it? And as much as the sexual revolution and the rise of rabid individualism, those were shocking and disoriented in a broad, disorienting in a broad cultural sense for my great-grandmother and her generation. The continuing spread and the evolution of those same social, spiritual, and philosophical trends, and not least the, the acceleration of the rate of change, leaves most of us, I think, feeling like someone's pulled the rug out from under us. Do you feel like that some days? The pace of all this change, spiritual and philosophical, it is frankly staggering. I actually think how things were in 1993 when my grandmother died was much closer to the time and how things were when she was born than how they are now thinking in terms of spiritual and philosophical issues. The change of pace has been staggering. The the people who promote all these changes like to pretend that nothing's changed at all. And that leaves the rest of us even more breathless and troubled, even with anxiety about where things are headed and what it will mean for us, and what do we do with it right now? There's a cartoon where this leftist progressive liberal man accusingly asks the traditionalist, who radicalized you? And that traditionalist man leans in and says, no one. I'm just a normal person from five years ago. And I think most of us here can probably identify with that. Just a few years ago, the idea of people telling you their pronouns and then expecting you to play along was absurd. Just a few years ago, most people would think you were crazy if you said that one day the city of Courtney would be flying a rainbow pride flag and painting rainbow crosswalks downtown. 
just a few years ago to look at the world and to sort everyone and to view everything in terms of classes of oppressor and oppressed and to judge everyone on the basis of power and privilege or their lack thereof and to to put them on on a graded scale in those terms. That was the purview of a handful of Marxist academics. And now if you don't support these things, people ask, who radicalized you? Why can't you get with the program? Even though people have only been talking this way for a handful of years. Maybe they cancel you. Something else we'd never heard of until just a little while ago, too. If only we had the confidence to stand firm and respond like the man in the cartoon. There's nothing wrong with me. I'm just a normal person from five years ago. You're the ones who've lost your minds. Instead, we often feel, though, we don't have that confidence. We feel as though we've been thrown into deep and murky water, struggling to stay afloat while our feet are scrambling down below, trying to find something solid on which to stand. And speaking of something solid on which to stand, where's the church in the middle of all of this? We're increasingly sidelined. Now, our part of the world here has probably always been the least churched part of Christendom. And I like to think that perhaps there's something providential in our being placed here at this time, that God has us right where he wants us to teach us and to prepare us for the days ahead. That is, after all, why I think we need to study Daniel. But Christianity has, at least in the eyes of the world out there, become pretty much irrelevant. When I meet people in our community and I talk to them about what I do, I realize that even a lot of older people have no idea what we are about as Christians. They have as much idea of what goes on in a church as I have what goes on in the Legion Hall or the Masonic Lodge. And they have about as much interest in what goes on in a church as I have as what goes on in the Legion or the Masonic Lodge. I've talked to people who don't have any idea what a clerical caller is. I've talked to people who have no idea what a pastor is. People who know nothing about the Bible. And one woman I talked to a few years ago who thinks Jesus was just a nice man, a teacher, who lived a couple hundred years ago and was, well, mostly riffing on Buddha. The Dutch missiologist Stefan Poss describes this attitude toward the church as apatheism. When these things first start, people are atheists. They're angry with God. They have to oppose God because God stands as a challenge to their new way of life and their new way of thinking. But once that new way of life and new way of thinking has taken over, there's no more point in being an atheist. People just are apathetic towards the church, towards God, towards Christianity and the gospel. Most people look at us and they aren't. Most people aren't hostile. They just don't care. They think we're quaint. Maybe they think we're a little bit weird and old-fashioned, but that's, that's about it. But when the church does take a stand for something, for the gospel, for Jesus, for right and wrong, for truth, when we do make ourselves heard and expect others to listen, when we openly challenge the gods and kings of the pagans, 
then we get in trouble. People get angry, people get nasty. And sadly, in the church, there are people who will jump ship, jump overboard, lest any of that nastiness or anger fall on them, lest people out there think less of them or call them haters or bigots or whatever for refusing to go along with this rapid onset cultural insanity. And so we end up as a church sidelined even more, and to communicate with the world around us becomes an even more uphill battle than it was before. Like the Christians in the first and second centuries who were falsely accused of being atheists because they worshipped only one God, and to the Greeks and Romans, to worship one God, you might as well not worship a God at all. They were accused of incest because they referred to each other as brother and sister. They were accused of cannibalism because they said they ate the body and drank the blood of the Lord. They were accused of being disloyal and politically disruptive troublemakers because they refused to worship Caesar. The accusations that are thrown at us today are different. We're haters because we insist that sin is sin and truth is truth. Or we're bigots because we believe that Jesus crucified and risen is the only way to the Father. And we're patriarchal and sexist and misogynist because we talk of God as Father and Jesus as the Son and believe that God created men and women to be different but complementary. And it's even more troubling... Again, like the rug being pulled out from under us when our fellow Christians give in and capitulate to the increasingly anti-Christian culture. For most of my life, the division, for example, between the liberal mainline churches and orthodox evangelical churches, that division was mostly in the past. As evangelicals, we have watched those mainline churches that capitulated to the culture a century ago thinking that it would make them relevant, we've watched them become less and less relevant. We've seen them dwindle and dwindle and dwindle down until there's nothing or almost nothing left. And we thought the church was done with making those sorts of mistakes, with capitulating to the demands of the culture to get by or to become socially acceptable. We know you can't worship Yahweh and Zeus on the same altar. Not and keep your soul. Our generations, yours and mine, not only recognized that that move as a betrayal of Jesus and the gospel, but also that it didn't work. And yet now we have a new generation that's trying it all over again. My own seminary. When I went there was a bastion of evangelicalism, of orthodoxy. And now it seems to be turning out pastors who are reshaping the church and the gospel in light of those same neo-Marxist categories of oppressor and oppressed, of privileged and unprivileged, and embracing expressive individualism and all that means in terms of identity politics and postmodern sexual ethics and the ideas of, the, of sexual identity. I've sort of been in blissful ignorance for years because I really haven't had any connection with the school since I graduated. But I'm part of an alumni group on Facebook. And if in that group you dare to say things that the seminary not only upheld but taught 30 years ago, you will be woke-scolded, as they say. You will be shut down in that infuriatingly postmodern, passive-aggressive way that we're starting to hear 
from all quarters around us in the secular world. It occurred to me that people doing that sound remarkably and creepily like the director of Nice in C.S. Lewis's That Hideous Strength. If there was a book for today, that might be one of them. I listen to the sermons of some of those younger alumni, and I hear pastors who are deliberately leading their congregations in the process of deconstruction, pulling the faith apart, throwing away the parts that don't fit with the modern world, and then cobbling something back together that's no longer Christianity. Promoting a false gospel, having again more to do with Marx than with Jesus, and even defending sexual immorality. Now, many of us here were forced out of the mainline Anglican churches as they followed a similar path decades ago. But now, once strongly evangelical denominations, in my observation from graduates from my own seminary, denominations like the Christian and Missionary Alliance, the Mennonites, the Canadian Baptists, they're spiraling down the drain. And their pastors, even as they go down the drain into apostasy and irrelevance, they're rebuking and scolding those of us who are holding to the Bible with everything we've got. Our solid rock in the midst of the raging sea. The ship's going down and we're holding on to the life preservers and they're yelling at us that we're in the wrong somehow. I mean, even our own Anglican church in North America hasn't been immune. Barely a decade after our founding, having experienced all this wickedness, and we're already having to confront a younger generation who, with no personal experience of those old struggles, is ready to run straight back into that old folly. Berfoli Beach sent a letter out to the church a couple of years ago and said, I never thought I would see the day that ACNA would be torn apart over sexual issues and sexual politics. And thankfully we haven't. The bishops have been dealing with these things. But it's the cultural air in which we breathe, the water in which we swim, and it will continue to impact the church. So what do we do? Because the world's largely ambivalent to our message. Remember a few years ago, I hand-delivered over 100 invitations to Christianity Explored to the houses in our neighborhood. And not a single person followed up, let alone showed up. And when we do speak up, when we do make ourselves noticeable, we're shouted down or falsely accused of all sorts of things that aren't true, and then we're sent to go sit in the corner like a bad child. And sometimes that's exactly kind of what we end up doing, isn't it? Society tells us we're bad and we're wrong. Go sit in the corner and we don't know what else to do. So we kind of do just go sit in the corner and face the wall and wait for things to pass. So what do we do? Well, brothers and sisters, we are not the first believers to face this kind of thing. Now, after 2,000 years of Christendom, it feels like we're the first ones to encounter this kind of thing. And after 2,000 years of Christendom, I think we are struggling with how to respond to our world and with what to do. We're struggling with how to be the church when the church is out of favor with the world. Because none of us have ever actually known that. Do we defend ourselves from the false accusations or do we go sit in the corner? 
How do we proclaim the good news when people are predisposed to just dismiss it? How do we, what, what do we do when our traditional methods of evangelism no longer work? What do we do when the world pressures us to go along to get along? And I think the most important question of all, where is the Lord in all of this? Does he not want to see his church succeed? Does he not want to see the gospel go out to the ends of the earth? Why are we regressing? Why are we on the sidelines suddenly? Brothers and sisters, again, we are not the first Christians to face these kinds of questions. I mean, we could go back and look at the letters that John wrote in the book of Revelation to those seven churches in Asia Minor. Letters exhorting them to stand firm in faith on Jesus and the gospel because a storm of persecution was coming. We could look at those. We already did that two years ago, didn't we? So I want to look at another time of trouble for God's people that most of us probably aren't nearly so familiar with. And this starts getting us to Daniel. The books of First and Second Maccabees in the Apocrypha. They tell us the story of Judah about 160 years, 165 years before Jesus was born. In the time between the Testaments, the Jews had returned from their Babylonian exile. They had rebuilt Jerusalem and the temple, but they still lived under the rule of the Persians. They were part of the Persian Empire. And then the Greek conqueror, Alexander the Great, He defeated the Persians in 331 B.C., and Judah eventually became part of his empire. Alexander didn't live very long. And when he died, his generals fought over and divvied up his empire, and they and their descendants fought over their pieces for two and a half centuries. And poor Judah, at the crossroads of Syria and Egypt, got caught in the middle of that. Now, the Greek kings, for the most part, left Judah alone. She had a special sort of temple temple state status with them. She was ruled by the high priest. And instead of Greek tax collectors going in and collecting taxes from everyone, the high priest paid it. And the Greek kings, for the most part, left Judah alone in terms of her faith and her religion although the Greek ways gradually infiltrated and people heard them and bought into them. But things slowly went downhill. The priesthood was bought and sold by corrupt men. A lot of Jews gradually adopted the pagan ways and ideas of the Greeks and became less and less faithful to the Torah. But things really went from, in Judah, they really went from bad to worse under a king named Antiochus IV. People called him Epiphanes, just like our current season of the church year, because he believed he was Zeus, the god Zeus, manifest, Epiphany, manifest in the flesh. Antiochus was at war with Egypt, and he wanted Judah to know that she belonged to him, not to the Egyptians. And he also wanted to get his hands on the temple treasury to fund his war efforts. So Antiochus pillaged the temple, desecrated it with an altar of Zeus, and actively suppressed their Jewish way of life, their ability to live by the Torah. He tried to turn them into good Greeks, to solidify his kingdom. 
here's how the author of 1 Maccabees tells it. Inspired or not, it's history. Listen and see if any of this sounds uncomfortably familiar. I know our situation isn't this bad, but see if it sounds uncomfortably familiar. Then the king, that would be Antiochus IV, the king wrote to his whole kingdom that all should be one people and that all should give up their particular customs. All the Gentiles accepted the command of the king. Many, even from Israel, gladly adopted his religion. They sacrificed to idols and profaned the Sabbath. And the king sent letters by messengers to Jerusalem and the towns of Judah. He directed them to follow customs strange to the land, to forbid burnt offerings and sacrifices and drink offerings in the sanctuary, that's the temple, to profane Sabbaths and festivals, to defile the sanctuary and the priests, to build altars and sacred precincts and shrines for idols, to sacrifice swine and other unclean animals, and to leave their sons uncircumcised. They were to make themselves abominable by everything unclean and profane so that they would forget the law and change all the ordinances. He added, whoever does not obey the command of the king shall die. In such words, he wrote to the whole kingdom. He appointed inspectors over all the people and commanded the towns of Judah to offer sacrifice town by town. Many of the people, every one who forsook the law, they joined them, and they did evil in the land. They drove Israel into hiding in every place of refuge they had. Now, on the 15th day of Kislev, in the 145th year, they erected a desolating sacrilege on the altar of burnt offerings. They also built altars in the surrounding towns of Judah and offered incense at the doors of the houses and in the streets. The books of the law that they found, they tore to pieces and burned with fire. And anyone found possessing the book of the covenant or anyone who adhered to the law was condemned to death by decree of the king. They kept using violence against Israel, against those who were found month after month in the towns. On the 25th day of the month, they offered sacrifice on the altar that was on top of the altar of burnt offering. According to the decree, they put to death the women who had their children circumcised and their families and those who circumcised them, and they hung the infants from their mother's necks. Immense pressure was put on the people to conform. Many of their leaders were in on it. Many, feeling the pressure and fearing men rather than God, they capitulated. But not everybody. The passage goes on, But many in Israel stood firm and were resolved in their hearts not to eat unclean food. They chose to die rather than to be defiled by food or to profane the holy covenant. And they did die. Very great wrath came upon Israel. In the midst of that nightmare of persecution, the book of Daniel was written. I know you were starting to wonder what any of this had to do with Daniel. In the midst of that time of persecution, Daniel was written. People were asking those questions. What do we do? How do we remain faithful? How do we draw the line or where do we draw the line with these pagans and their demands? And of course, that all-important question above all the others Where is God in this? 
Why is he allowing this to happen to us? And so one of those men in faithful Judah, inspired by the Spirit, undertook to exhort his people by looking back to the last time Judah had faced tragedy and had been tempted to compromise with pagans. And that had been the Babylonian exile. Specifically, he looked back to a man named Daniel. Now, in the centuries since Daniel had lived, he had become a popular subject of stories about faithfulness and wisdom. A bunch of them are in the book of Daniel. The Greek version that's in the the Septuagint. There are even more stories about Daniel. And outside of that, there are even more stories about Daniel. So this man, living during the reign of Antiochus IV, he collected some of these stories to form the first part of his book. Stories that were written in Aramaic, which had become the common language of the Jews since their exile. The first half of Daniel, or most of the first half of Daniel, is this odd part of the Old Testament that's written in Aramaic instead of Hebrew. That's why. And then he wrote in Hebrew an apocalypse in the style of a prophecy told by Daniel. And in that apocalypse, he recounts the history of Judah's recent troubles. And through it all, he reminds the people that no matter what things look like, the Lord is sovereign over all, even pagan kings, and that he is with his people, even when it doesn't seem like it. And in the end, knowing the faithfulness of the God of Israel, he looks forward in hope to the vindication of his people and to the Lord finally setting things to rights. Now, Daniel's really quite a bit more complicated than that, but I won't bore you with all that this morning. That's Daniel in a nutshell. We'll crack open the nut in the coming months, and I trust we'll be blessed, encouraged, and and exhorted by what we find there, especially knowing that it was written to people who felt as though the rug had been pulled out from under them and who were asking the same sorts of hard questions that we're asking as God's people today. The answers aren't always easy. Sometimes we have to work out the math ourselves like a story problem. One of the interesting things about Daniel is that while we classify him as a prophet, and we put him with the prophet in our Christian Bibles, the Jews placed this book in the section they called the writings. All of the books in the Bible that weren't either law or prophet. And not everyone agrees on why they did that, but the prevailing view seems to be that Daniel was seen early on as wisdom literature like Job or Proverbs or Ecclesiastes. Those books where the big questions are worked out. Where is God? Why do bad things happen to his people? How does faithfulness work out practically in life? Daniel answers those sorts of questions And one of the things I appreciate about the book of Daniel is that it shows us how we work out these questions, how we work out how to be faithful to the Lord in difficult times and difficult places in light of the big story of God and his people. I'd originally planned, like I said, for our Old Testament lesson to be something from Daniel. But I looked at the lectionary and the lesson it gives us from Zechariah 8, and I realized that it's perfect. 
Whoever compiled and composed Daniel as an exhortation to the people of Judah, living under Antiochus Epiphanes, not only looked back to Daniel's experience in exile, but he also knew the story and the promises the Lord had made to his people before and during that exile. Promises just like the one we heard earlier from Zechariah. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am jealous for Zion with great jealousy, and I am jealous for her with great wrath. Imagine what that meant to God's people. You are mine. I'm not going to let you go no matter how bad things get. Thus says the Lord, I will return to Zion and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. Jerusalem shall be called the faithful city. And the mountain of the Lord of hosts shall be called the holy mountain. In Daniel's day, and in the day of whoever composed Daniel, that surely was not the case. But the Lord's promise was there. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Old men and old women shall again sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each with staff in hand because of their great age, and the streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in its streets. Thus says the Lord of hosts, even though it seems impossible to the remnant of this people in these days, should it also seem impossible to me, says the Lord of hosts? You ask these questions. You ask, how can it be? And the Lord says, I have spoken. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will save my people from the east country and from the west country, and I will bring them to live in Jerusalem. They shall be my people, and I will be their God in faithfulness and in righteousness. He knew, this man living in the days of Antiochus, knew that there were parts of this prophecy yet to be fulfilled. And in those dark days, that unfulfilled prophecy gave him hope because he knew from the history of his people that the Lord always does what he promises. When the Lord speaks, he does what he said he will do. But in particular, there's the second half of our lesson from verses 20 to 23. It goes on and says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, People shall yet come, the inhabitants of many cities. The inhabitants of one city shall go to another, saying, Come, let us go to entreat the favor of the Lord and to seek the Lord of hosts. I myself am going. Many peoples and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to entreat the favor of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, In those days ten men from the nations of every language shall take hold of a Jew, grasping his garment and saying, Let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. The author of Daniel looked around at his people, and even though... Many of the people he knew were doing their best to be faithful. He saw so much compromise. Nobody out in the world, none of the nations, were looking to Jerusalem and saying, i got to go there and meet this God. The nations instead looked at Judah, and they saw people who were conquered, and in the ancient world that meant their God was conquered. If they were going to go look for a God of power, they would go to the gods of the Greeks. But because this man knew that the Lord is faithful, he could look forward in hope to that day when the Lord would restore his people and make them what they were, what they are supposed to be. 
He could look forward to that day that you and I have seen fulfilled in Jesus the Messiah when the men and women of the nations would finally at last take hold of the robe of a Jew. And not just any Jew, but the Jew. Jesus, and plead, let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. And brothers and sisters, you and I have seen these prophecies fulfilled in Jesus. We are the Gentiles who have grabbed hold of his blood-soaked robe so that he can lead us to the God of Israel. We who were not a people have through him become his people. We see promise after promise fulfilled in him, fulfilled in the pouring out of the Spirit, fulfilled as the gospel has gone out to the nations, and as the nations have come to the God of Israel to give him glory. And we too can look forward in faith, knowing the Lord's faithfulness. Knowing, for example, again, just, just one of so many, that one day the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. Friends, no matter how difficult or how dark the days, whether we walk beside still waters or we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, though we know blessing or we know cursing, though we experience his approval or his discipline, the Lord is with us. He has given his Son for our sake. He has poured out his Spirit to equip us for his work. And he has given us his gospel to proclaim for the life of the world. And he has done none of that in vain. So I think Daniel will help us understand and answer those hard questions. But before we hear him speak, let us commit to holding fast to the solid rock, to the basic truths we already know revealed in Jesus the Messiah himself, that the Lord loves us, that the Lord has a glorious future for us and all of creation, that the Lord is with us no matter what. And most of all, that great truth revealed in Jesus and in his death and resurrection, that the Lord will go to any length to keep his promise to us. When things are difficult, when pressure is on, when it seems like we have become irrelevant or even that the church may die out, remember that the Lord has spoken and the Lord has come in Jesus. No matter what happens, if he has said it will happen, it will. And we can place our faith and hope in that. So as we prayed in our collect, let us pray again. Almighty and everlasting God, you govern all things, both in heaven and on earth. Mercifully hear the supplication of your people, and in our time grant us your peace. And fill us with faith and hope. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen.